Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has one year of law enforcement analysis experience with eight years of intelligence analysts with the military. He holds a master's of science in political science. He's here to talk about his transition from the military to the sheriff's office. Please welcome Andrew Hollemeyer. Andrew, how are we doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I am doing well. So special thanks to Akshata Kumavat, who I had on the show about a month ago. She named names and told me that, hey, I need to get Andrew on the show. So here you are. Here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, when we were just talking there, before we hit record, you had mentioned that uh, you're into genealogy and uh, that name Holomeyer has four E's in it and it's quite longer than what it used to be. What have you found out about your last name? So, I mean, we went, as far as the, the Holomeyer side of my family genealogy, it's, it's kind of boring because we... <laughs> Pretty much, I get that side of the family back overseas, and then the, the applications I use for all that, they don't do very well once you get back over. So pretty much after my, my dad's dad, you hit back over, you don't get a lot further than, than the fact that they, they're all from Germany kind of thing. So for that part of the family, it's pretty boring. You hit the, the wall on about my great great but the rest of the family gets pretty pretty interesting as far as that goes. For, for the longest time, I know I was looking at my mom's side of the family. Her maiden name's Glenn. For the longest time, I thought they were Irish. And then doing kind of the research there, actually found it out that they were German last name and they changed it right around the time of the Second World War to sound more English, Irish. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, you can start pulling that thread and find a bunch of interesting stuff, it sounds like. All right, but we're going to – I had to cut it off there because we'll get on a tangent right here. So how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So as far as the, the job I'm in now, I found out found out at LinkedIn when I was actually looking to get out of the military. But I knew about – law enforcement and now probably before then my mom i brought up her family but my mom is a police officer and she's been in work in their intelligence unit in that area for close to 10 years and so i remember at least about the time i was graduating high school and all that when i kind of learned about intelligence in the the law enforcement type career field and and that but from you know what i what i always saw then was police officers and them and them doing the work it was a civilian type analyst doing the job and then when i went off to college i was in the rotc program and ended up getting selected during rotc to be an intelligence officer in the air force all along those lines and that kind of led me here and then as i was to get out of the military, active duty in the military, the job happened to appear, and I said that sounded interesting. So I kind of asked my mom a few more questions than I had ever asked her about it before, and, <laughs> and now I'm here. <laughs> yeah, she probably tried to tell you about it before, and you wouldn't listen, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. All right. So when you were in college and you're studying political science, what were some of the avenues that you were trying to go? So while I was getting my degree, I actually managed to get an internship with the congressman for, you know, where I was growing up. I grew up in Cincinnati. So I was actually did an internship with Steve Shabbat one summer for while I was in college. I always knew I wanted to get, I was going into the military while I was there. So that was kind of my, my primary route. And, you know, wherever that kind of led me was kind of my my plan at the time, but I did was interested in when I was studying political science and getting involved in something in government, whether it was, you know, some point working for the State Department or, or something along at the local level type government. Okay. And then, so did you go into the military thinking that you would go into intelligence right away, or was that a kind of a process? No, actually, I wanted to, when I originally was looking at the military, I wanted to fly airplanes. I wanted to specifically fly A-10. But at that time, the military was looking to, the Air Force specifically, was looking to scrap the the A-10. And so I said, well, I don't want to be a pilot if the one plane I want to fly, all the whole Air Force is going to be gone by the time (laughs) I actually am able to fly. Mm -hmm. So I kind of washed that aside in college and my now wife. And I, I remember... I said, oh, yeah, this is what I wanted to do when I was joining the military, and I showed her pictures. And, of course, the first picture of the plane, the, the engine had bullet holes in it and things like that. And she looked and said, you are absolutely not flying that. I said, yeah, I know. It's too late. I already got fit to be an intel. I'm not, 
I'm not going to be flying her plane. So why the A-10? It was a, honestly, it was the kind of, it was like kind of the cool factor mm-hmm. of flying low, you're flying slow, and you're able to blow up tanks, that type of stuff, <laughs> providing ground support and that, that type of stuff. So it seemed really cool to me, and I was younger, you know, younger than I am now, and looking back now, I was like, yeah, I don't really do that doesn't interest me now as I'm a little bit older, but when I was young, that, you know, and, and the type of warfare we were fighting, terrorist organizations, that was going to put you kind of on the front lines, helping out helping out the fighting. You know, at the time, Al-Qaeda, and then, you know, as time has moved on, ISIS and those types, those types of things. Yeah. Hmm. And so when you get into the military and you get into intelligence, so what training do you go through? Was this part of something that it, it took you a while to pick up? the whole intelligence gig so i get into the so i get into the military uh, commissioned in may of 2014 and pretty much within a month i was you know we were on me and a, there were me and th- two other guys that i graduated uh, and commissioned with and we all go off to our technical training school which is out in san angelo texas i had a little base called goodfellow air force and we go down there there's the three of us we end up spending about a month once we get down there waiting to actually get into class and it's a it's the longest Outside of pilot training, one of the longest technical courses that the military has, and it's about six months long of of training. And I'll say that my political science degree did not prepare me for what the, <laughs> the military expects of of an intelligence officer. There's a lot of, of stuff that you know I never would have thought I had to learn in that regard. So I'm learning things about the electromagnetic spectrum and how different types of communication, you know, these different waveforms, understanding how radars function, just things that in my mind I'm going like, I never, to me an intelligence officer is looking at, you know, what's this bad person on that side of the world trying to do, not, you know, what's this radar do uh, and how does this radar going to detect an airplane and how can we prevent that radar from detecting an airplane? So it was a it was a very in the, at least initially a very difficult time for me. The first I would say the first four or so blocks of the of the instruction were fairly easy, and then then we got into that technical stuff, and I was like I don't I don't know if I picked the right career, at least from the military perspective. But we got through it, you know, and I, luckily somehow I don't know how I did it, but I managed to not fail any of the any of the tests. I was able to graduate after the the grilling I got of my life. I remember so there were to graduate there were three exercises we go through at the very end, and I was at that one one exercise away from the final exercise, and I probably got grilled for about a good hour by the instructor in front of the whole class about everything under the sun that they could think of. Honestly, to this day, don't know how I passed that test but it was pretty it was pretty entertaining but yeah I can say that probably one of the, probably the second or second or third most challenging course I ever had to deal with that initial class okay so in terms of that grilling was that something that all the students had to go through or did you say something that you shouldn't have or were being corrected I don't know if it was the instructor was trying to make sure that I deserved to go on to the next you know portion of the course Mm-hmm. Or if it was, you know, I mean, I know there were a few things, or do you remember there were a few things I said where, yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that. And, <laughs> and he was digging for more details because I probably gave him more information should have mm-hmm. type thing. I gave more military always jokes about, you know, giving people the rope to hang you with. And I gave him the rope to hang me with as I kind of went along that way. So I think it was a little bit of, you know, him trying to make sure that I deserve to move forward as well as me kind of giving him the means to, to continue <laughs> the grilling. So a little bit of back and forth there. And then, so with the intelligence training there, so I know in the military there's various forms of intelligence. There's the the hot topic one probably nowadays is people hear open source, OSINT, open source intelligence, and then there's signal intelligence, and then there's probably a couple others in there that you were learning about. Yeah, so we learned about open source, human human intelligence, signals intelligence, which the military breaks up into communications intelligence, and then ELINT, which is electronics intelligence, and then there's MASINT, which is measurements intelligence. Honestly, the best I've ever heard anybody describe that as, it's kind of magic. <laughs> function there's if unless you've worked it nobody really knows how Measure the best yeah, when usually people ask me well what's when i was when i went back to the text taught students would ask me about it and i'd be like it's it's magic i don't i don't really know too much about that uh-huh. uh, you got to find somebody who's done it Boy. once you get past training then what types of tasks are you doing as as an intel officer so my first assignment once i 
Once I graduated and got through the grilling, <laughs> I moved on to Whiteman Air Force Base, where I was proceeded to be grilled again <laughs> by my, my supervisor. But a lot of it was pouring in an airframe. We were supporting B-2 bombers. And so a lot of our work was looking at nation. So how Russia's military organizes, how you know China, North Korea, Syria, all those different countries, and how they, how they were operating. Obviously, Syria kind of changed over t- my time in the military. And from what it was, when I initially joined, but so we would look at, you know, what weapon systems do they have, and then look at things along the line of we'd have our our missions that our actual airframe were tasked out against. If, you know, in the event of a war, here's kind of what your plane's going to do and how it's going to support the war effort. So I'd not only was, so while I was there, I'd, I moved around a lot and did a lot of things. I started out mainly giving briefings to commanders and, and leadership about here's what these various nation states are doing. Here's the type of activity that's going on. Here are new weapon systems that are being developed by those countries. And then, and then I would move, and then I moved on after that support the the bomb squadron so in that case i'm sitting over directly with the pilot and i'm responsible for training them on the different threats that they might encounter when they actually go when they actually go fly me and then while i'm while i'm there a bomb squadron we we go out and we do um, we're over there supporting their daily flying so they, they have a they have a story they're going to fly today and you know my job is to make sure that i when i give them a briefing i'm briefing them something the training the training mission that they're actually okay all right. And then you eventually get into teaching, though, right? Correct. So while I'm at White Boy, Kuwait, and while I'm there, I focus more on force protection and that type of stuff. So looking at terrorist threats and those type of things. And then once I get back from Kuwait, about six months left at Whiteman, and I'm deciding on where I want to go for my next assignment. So I talk with my wife, and I'm kind of like, where do we want to go? What do we want to do kind of thing and ultimately we just de- decided to go back the text time i wasn't sure if i was if i wanted to get out or if i stay in on active duty and i said well if i decide to get out you know let's go back take all of the knowledge and experience i learned while i was at white while i was deployed in kuwait and try to teach the next generation of analysts and kind of do my bit to to make sure the knowledge that i learned lost so i ended up going back to the tech school and i start spending my first year and a half there as an instructor teaching the new Office. All right, now you're doing the grilling now, though, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I get to now I get to do the grilling. But it was one of those things where having those varieties, spending time at White Men, and learning all the different things I learned there, plus that deployment while I was there, I got got to be exposed to a lot of different things in the intelligence community. So when I was at you know, tech school, I was teaching. I would say about I was I had enough experiences while I you know between my assignment and deployment teach about 75% of the course. And the only thing I really didn't have a ton of experience to teach was a lot of the signals collection platforms, which was fine with me because we had a bunch of people who had a ton of experience in, in those type of platforms. So it was yes. Yeah, so I got to do a lot of the grilling, and I actually got to to sit in in that exercise where I got myself grilled as extra instructor now sitting through that exercise. I would say, honestly, as the instructor, though, the most rewarding part was I had several students that, you know, they struggled through kind of like, you know, kind of like I did, how I telling you I struggled through in the beginning and learning things that I never thought I would ever have to learn. So I got to sit down and help. I would say my time there, I probably helped five or six that, you know, had similar struggles to myself. I actually get through the course and get through that. Yeah. Hmm. So then do you have any stories that you like to tell during this time you're, when you're in the military, either as an analyst or as an instructor there that just to, gives the audience a a better idea of what you were going through. Yeah. So, well, one of the so one of the stories when I was deployed is we were, and this is it's kind of one of those stories where you're, you sit there and you kind of think about it and you're like, well, you know, why'd we? Uh, it's kind of it's, in a way it would be one of those stories of something that an analyst should never do. And this is a story I tell my tell my son things not to do. And you know, you kind of you have these lessons that you learn from time to time. So when I was deployed, we had a, an issue with some of our planes getting getting shot at while they were flying. And so you know, our our, our planes keep getting shot at my boss well you need to figure out who you know who's actually responsible for that so we start digging into it and we start looking into it and me and the one analyst that i work with we think this one group you know we think it's actually shooting at our well another analyst gets up there and they get in front of the commander and we told this analyst you know hey we're pretty sure it's isis and the analyst gets up there and they go no 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 it's shia militia groups they're shooting at our and they got a map up and they're showing it all and i'm looking at it and i and so after the after they get done you know briefing it, the commander buys off on what they 
say, I go up to him and I ask him, I go, why'd you say it was, you know, the Shia militia groups and not ICE? We're all pretty certain it's ICE. And they look at me and they say, because the map for my slide shows the, basically, it's called a flot, but it's the forward line of troop. And it shows that we're being shot at on this side, side controlled by Shia militia. And it shows us we're being shot at. And rather than try to convince the commander that you know, this forward line of troops isn't, isn't permeable, because they are, because terrorist groups don't care where where the forward line of the battlefield they'll they'll drive through it all all night it was just easier to tell the commander that it was this group so we're kind of sitting there and we're like well it's not the right answer and they go yeah but you're then trying to argue with the commander and tell him that the map isn't accurate hmm. so that definitely sounds like so, a don't be that analyst <laughs> yeah so we were we were like all right and then luckily we were validated and able to go back and you know correct it because about three or four days later you know information would come out that yeah it was actually i you know they had all this reporting that came out and we we're like well sir you know this hiring to death now now did the strategy change drastically based on changing that that intel like what you did next like what your recommendation to do next did it change drastically given that it went from one group being responsible to now thinking no you you're telling command staff no it's this other group it did in a way but at the same time you know both neither group was neither group was really trusted mm-hmm. it did but it didn't at the time i would say the biggest change was in there were some minor changes to the route line but overall command staff concerned with both groups anyways mm-hmm. So it did force some minor changes to routes, but overall, in the grand, the thing we still need to fly is the European River Line. So that's an interesting situation that you got yourself in, or I guess you didn't get yourself in, that you've experienced, because obviously there was many ways to handle that, and you certainly could have not waited until the briefing was over and stand up then and say explain why you think it's this other group isis and but you waited and really did a more it seems it seems to from my point of view you went more of a diplomatic route and tried to work behind the scenes and get it resolved in, in a more diplomatic way yeah I mean, the, so at the time when all this happened, I was been in, on active duty about three years, and the analyst who actually briefed it had been in the military for about ten when they actually gave the briefing. And so it was one of those things where they had they had so much experience and time that it, that you know the commander knows that, and mm-hmm. you know they ultimately weigh that those years of experience at the same time too. So me getting up there and trying to to fight that point at at that time, you know, is it is it worth destroying that person's credibility over or you know, can we find more information and go back and tell the commander later, like, actually, sir, it's, it's this. We found more information. Uh, that kind of leads to this, that, you know, the other analyst. Yeah. Let them save face a little bit. All right. So then, you know, in terms of your military career, is there other aspects of maybe some of the accomplishments that you created or something that you're particularly proud of? I would say the, the you know, obviously, the, you know, one of the things I'm proud of is going back to the tech school and getting to to teach and train, the, you know, the next generation of intel officers and kind of offer them tips and tricks and advice. But I would say while I was at White, one of the, the big things there is it's a strategic level platform. So we do a lot of deterrence messaging with the, with our bomber aircraft, Russia and China and all of that. Actually being able to kind of serve in that regard, you're constantly out there doing stuff like that, being involved in things that, you know, most people don't see happen every day, but they have a day where you're out, you know, mess- conducting exercises to kind of send that message along the way. That was So the military does a big exercise called Red Flag that takes place in Las Vegas and getting to go out there and do that and work the Brits and the Aussies cool as well because you get to kind of see how we integrate, you know, our, our allies and all of the type of operations that they can perform and how we help each other. So that was another cool to go out and get to see how that's all done done kind of an interesting story so while we were out there that red flag it's kind of that intel analysts need to be prepared at any kind of time to do anything one of our pilots with their upgrade well we didn't know this at the time but if your pilot's doing this certain upgrade the intel unit for that platforms the pilot as lead intel organization for the whole x so when we had gone out we were we were just me and one uh, other person normally when you go out to support a red flag you take half half of your shop you know you're looking at 10 people or so going 
going out to support the thing because you got people working day and night. Well, because we only sent the two of us out there, we didn't take supplies with us because our planning all of our missions from White, and then our planes were flying from White Vegas and then go back. So we didn't have any planes out there. We didn't have any equipment for us because we were just passing information from the exercise back to White so they could actually um, execute the missions from White. So, so lo and behold, Captain walks and he goes, oh, by the way, you guys are the lead intel team mission. I look at him and I say, well, I don't, I don't have anything, sir. I have no maps. I have no markers pens, anything. I said, I have myself, a phone, and a notepad to write notes to send back to Whiteman. <laughs> and so he goes, what do you mean you guys didn't bring anything out here? And I go, we weren't planning on doing this. You know, we were, all our mission planning is taking place back at Whiteman. So he goes, well, you guys better find something because you got about an hour before you need to do your briefing. Oh, boy. So running around this whole big building, stealing maps off the walls, you know, <laughs> people's markers where we could find them. And we got the briefing done, and we got it all, you know, got everything thrown together. Oh, man. But at the end, you know, we have our feedback with the our mentor, and they go, you know, what were you guys thinking when you came out here? And we go, well, we weren't thinking we'd have to do this. <laughs> but it was, it was a mess, but we, I mean, we did it. But it was, it was not pretty, and then, you know, we get done, and we were turning people's markers to them, hanging the maps back up on the wall and stuff like that. So it was a, it was interesting, but it was one of those things where I was proud I was able to, you know, get everything thrown together, even with having nothing or next to nothing to work with at the start. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a always-be-prepared type of moment, so I can totally agree with that. All right, so I, I guess what... One last question before we move on to you getting into the sheriff's office is that, so did you see Top Gun Maverick? I have not. Oh, okay. So I was kind of curious how accurate that was and some of the, because that whole movie is about planning a special mission and having to do a very precise degree of difficulty for the the jets in order to succeed in the mission. So I was kind of curious when you watched that, what you, what you were thinking. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet. I, my wife and I both wanted to see it, but we have two two little boys, <laughs> a three-year-old and one-year-old, who limit that ability to go go watch movies sometimes. Yeah, I get we it. We haven't got a chance to see it yet. But I do know there are some things, at least from like the original Top Gun, where they, Top Gun does do a pretty good job of depicting some of the things that happen actually in the military and some of the, and that type of stuff. So Top Gun is a fairly, I mean, I haven't seen the new one, but the original one does do a decent job as well, too. All right. Well, let's take a break. When we come back, I do want to talk about your transition from the military to the sheriff's office. I want to talk to you about some personal interests, and we're going to do a call-in segment, favorite first job. So if you have a favorite first job, get your call-in. You're listening to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mary Berticelli. Would you like to solve a cold case? If your answer is yes, then enter a cold case from your agency into VICAP, the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Thanks. Hi, this is Jim Mallard. I'm the Crime Analysis Division Manager for the Houston Police Department. This is my public service announcement. This is a reminder from the people around you. Please don't make us listen to your half of your phone calls. If we're in a line or on a bus or in an elevator or some other captive situation we can't get out of, please be kind and hang up the damn phone. Welcome back, Andrew. Let's talk about the transition out of the military because you mentioned in the first part of the interview that you were debating whether to sign on for more active duty time or to eventually become a civilian. So what went into that decision? So the so when I originally joined the military, I you know, planned to do 20 years. And then, then I met my wife and I wasn't really sure if I wanted to do 20 years anymore as far as active. So I would say the real kind of decision point for me was after we had our first son. So we had him while I was a good fellow. And my dad was in the military, but he was never in the military during my lifetime before I was born. And so I always had a close relationship with my, my grandma and my grandpa and my, my parents. And we never really moved around a lot. And so I wanted him to have a relationship with my parents, my wife's family and her parents and her grandma and all that type of stuff. And so I started thinking about it. I was like, well, 
what do I want to do here? Do I want to kind of keep going on or do I not? And about the time, you know, that decision had to be made, we found out my wife was pregnant with our second son. And I looked at her and I said, all right, so what do we want to do here? I said, we can we can get out and go, you know, settle down and be close to, to family and not let the boys have a relationship with grandparents and that type of stuff or and continue on. Said, but I looked at her and I said, I said, but if we go, you know, if we leave Goodfellow and go to one more duty station, I said, the train's on the track and we're not, it's not getting off the tracks because at that point, when I would have finished that next assignment, I would have been over over halfway and at that point, it makes sense to get the get the retirement at 20 mm-hmm. and we're not going to, you know, get off the track. So we kind of talked about it a little back and forth and ultimately decided that, you know what, it's the time time to, to settle down because the other issue would have been, you know, if I would have gone to 20 years, my oldest would have been in high school at the time. So, you know, there would have been a thing where we're not moving moving while he's in high school so mm-hmm. we're stuck wherever we're stuck. And then, then the youngest one, now he would have joined, been in high school while the, going into high school while the oldest one was in high school. So we'd have been stuck there even longer. So it was one of those things where neither my wife or I had really moved around a bunch as kids. We always had, we were around family and st- that type of stable nature. Uh, and so we decided, you know, I think it's best for our kids to have a relationship with their grandparents. So let's leave active duty. So I decided to leave active duty, I would say, in the spring of right around the Right around the time that COVID hit. <laughs> Good timing. Yeah, I know, right? Perfect timing. The world goes into chaos. I decide, though, well, let's give up a stable. But I still had another about year or so before I could get out mm-hmm. uh, from from the military. So, you know, I was sitting there and I were like, well, hopefully the world turns around a little um, by the time we're ready to get out. And it did, it did in a way. So hmm. I did my transition. My wife was due in February. And my time in the military on active duty ended April of 2021. So about two months in between there. So she moved back actually around Christmas time to Ohio. And I was looking for a job <laughs> while she was gone. And so, I, you know, I'm looking around, trying to find a job. Come on, something needs to pop up and go my way kind of thing. And so I want to say, it was around January or so I saw a listing for criminal intelligence analyst and I said well I'm an intel analyst let me uh let me apply for this and hopefully it kind of works out and it was with the sheriff's department so I was in town because my son had my youngest son had born and so I'd taken leave from the military for that time from birth and then a few weeks after he was born uh, and did my interview with the sheriff's department I wasn't really sure how I did but I would say that you know AK kind of grilled me along the way but you know I would say that was one of the advantages the military gave me. It's kind of a board-style interview. One of the things the military likes to do is they like do what they call a murder board, which is where they put put you in front of five people and let them berate you with questions to make sure that you're you know what you're talking about and they trust you to go forward and do things. So I would say the military actually set me up kind of perfect for that type of interview that I sheriff's department. I don't. It was probably about say about a month or so after I did the interview, they called and offered me the job, and I said, "Yep, I need a job, and I'll, I'll do." it kind of so yeah so there wasn't much downtime there right so you got out in april and you started in with the sheriff's department in april right yes so i my separation date from active duty was april 15th and then i started on april 29th about so there was about two weeks kind of in between there but that was that was per my request a couple buddies of mine who i in a while we had planned a trip so we told ak i said yeah i'd like to to be there but i have a you know a little vacation planned so i took my little vacation and started working Man, good for you. It looks like you lucked out and you got a little bit of downtime. So it's yeah. uh, worked out well for you. So back to the interview, uh, you obviously didn't have the law enforcement analysis background, but I'm guessing that the questions that you at, were asked, you could easily relate and answer to based on some of the things that you did in the military. That's correct. Yeah, for sure. I know one of the questions I remember being asked, you know, what do you think is the most important part of the whole intelligence cycle and, and how all that functions? And that was one of the things that, you know, the military harps on is, you know, how does the flow of intelligence, the intelligence cycle and, and how things work. And ultimately, you know, in my opinion, when you look at the intelligence cycle, being able to evaluate the information you have and what you need to collect further is going to be, you know, one of those more important elements uh, of when you look at intelligence. So I think it was one of those things where because I had taught it, because I had learned it and because I had done it. One of the questions that was interesting is the difference between, you know, intelligence and evidence. And, you know, that's something you don't have to think about in the military of, you know, intelligence versus evidence kind of thing. But at the same time, if you, if you get an idea of what intelligence is from the military, to me, and, and having a 
you know, my mom be a law enforcement officer. You know, I'd heard talk about those types growing up. So without necessarily having the whole ton of law enforcement experience, but, you know, talking to people who had done law enforcement and having the intel experience, I think is really kind of what helped me get through the self. Hmm. So with that intelligence cycle question, is there a right or wrong answer to that? Or is that one of those interview questions where it, there's multiple answers and it's just how you defend your answer? I think it's what the latter, what you said there, it's more of there's, you could probably argue that any, you know, the multiple different of the, of those steps are actually important, but it's kind of your own personal opinion. And do you have the, do you have the understanding and knowledge to, to actually articulate why you think that step is the most important? Yeah. Well, I certainly don't think it's the most important step, but the one that always makes me smile is collate. Cause I, I just feel <laughs> that that's just one that it's, probably eventually going to be hard to understand because I, I knew it collate based on copying machines and how, you know, the output of copying machines worked and it would say, how you do you want it collated? So that's it. That part I understood because of the word, but collate is such an old word. And as we get farther and farther away from paper products, I don't know if generations are going to have difficulty understanding the concept of collate. Yeah, I was, we, we talk about being paper free and I always joke, I said the Air Force, they're trying to be paper free for, for years now. And it's still, they still print more paper than I've ever seen. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if the, you know, the sheriff's department might be able to be paper-free. <laughs> yeah. All right. So then let's talk about you starting at the sheriff's office and maybe what your expectation going in was, you know, how it was the same as the military, maybe how it was different. I would say expectations going in. The So the, the unit that I actually joined is a fairly new unit. I think we're really in our second year of having a team of analysts actually part of it. So kind of going in, expectations of, you know, this is something that I can, that I can make it in a way what I, you know, obviously as long as leadership accrues, but make it in a way that, that I want it to kind of be the, a job I kind of want to be and what to do. And I have kind of the ability to to learn and develop as an analyst in a, in a way that, that I kind of want, in a way that I kind of want as far as what the job entails. We were, you know, like I said, we were a new unit, new people. You know, the, obviously the big thing coming into that unit like that is you really don't know, you know, who who you're getting ready to work with and what their, their level of experience as far as that type of stuff goes. But that would be the biggest thing for me when I came into the unit as far as expectation was, you know, this is really something that I can that I can make a job I enjoy. You know, there isn't the, the I mean, there's obviously the, the legal legal things that take place when you do intelligence work but as far as the job itself as long as my boss is okay with me going, going this route and learning how to do this focusing on this it's kind of up to me it was kind of how I felt coming into the job I would say the biggest difference and it's still something that I I find interesting today coming from military intelligence civilian intelligence you know in military intelligence you're not allowed to to look at u.s persons you're not allowed to look at anything that is a, as a u.s entity whether it be a business or whatever, unless your unit has a special mission to do it, which I know never was a part of it. You did, and so I remember when we, when I was at at Whiteman, we had a pilot, and he was trying to be like, "Hey, can you, you know, figure out what frequency this radar is emitting on? That's air traffic control radar, and <laughs> then can you figure out what kind of adversary radar?" And it's in a similar frequency so we can, you know, pretend that said radar is adversary radar when we do our training. And at first I was like, sure. And then I started talking to one of the guys I worked with and he goes, we can't do that. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, U.S. owned radar. And I go, you know, you're right. So we, I went to back to the pilot and I said, yeah, man, I can't. I can't do that because, you know, it's a U.S. entity and I'm not allowed to do that versus, you know, as a what I what I do now or I'm always looking at U.S. people and, you know, obviously within the legal ramifications of who I'm allowed to look at, but, you know, I'm, I'm not allowed to, you know, going from not being able to look at anything related to a U.S. person to now all I look at is U.S. person, a very kind of interesting <laughs> difference between, between the two of them. Yeah, and it seems like you have a pretty wide variety of analysis that you're looking at, looking at your resume here, and it deals with statistical reports, it deals with repeat offenders, repeat victims, repeat locations, and then it also gets into specific criminal activity and tactical intelligence. So it is 
pretty wide range of activities that you're being asked to do. That, that is for sure. Um, yeah, a lot of different people, different different places. I mean, you run into you run you see the same people all the time. The people who've done this a long time know that you bump into the same names, faces every so often. But I will say one of the the cool things that I enjoy is you know no day is the same. Mm-hmm. Even if you're looking at the same individual, you know they're not necessarily doing the exact over and over. Yeah. So in terms of taking your military break background and applying it to your current job stuff like speaking in front of others is usually a common skill set that i hear folks talk about and writing applying reapplying that to their current duties was is there something that the military taught you that maybe is you were surprised that it carried over or that when you tell people that maybe they're Think like, oh, I wouldn't think that that would carry over from the military over into law enforcement. I mean, you hit the, the big kind of normal ones that people talk about from the military. But I would say one of the things the military teaches, and, you know, it's one of those things that even I as an officer obviously had more specific training to it. But even even the lowest level individual in the military, lowest ranking mil- military member gets taught leadership and followership and, and you know, that's obviously one of those skills that kind of transfers over, I guess, regardless. But I would say it was one of those things that, especially in a new unit, was useful because I could sit down with, with my boss. We could have a conversation, and she'd ask, you know, well, you've been in a military unit, and they they did this. You know, we're thinking about doing this part of our unit. You know, have you had any experience with that from a military type thing? So I would say that was one of the big things is, you know, I had I'd sat in those kind of meetings based on where my rank. So it was interesting to kind of be able to use that. That was one of those skills where yeah leadership and followership i kind of ex- you know expected to kind of come with me but i never really expected the to be asked this kind of question based on your experiences you know having done this kind of thing before what do you think of it so that would be one kind of thing i took from the military that you know is more than just your your writing and briefing yeah. i would say the other kind of big thing in military not like law enforcement where law enforcement has its crime analysis intelligence analysis the military kind of your intelligence Analysts, they do some of the stickle analysis, the, the stuff that you know we would view more as crime analysis in this career field. They do a lot of that kind of stuff as part of their job in the military. And I would say that was one of the things that when I kind of started this job and we were doing, we would work on a few crime stat products uh, that it kind of was like, oh, well, you know, this is kind of normal analysis that I would do in the military work. Yeah, I'm looking at numbers and what's going on over here and then kind of applying it and doing it all together. So that would be another kind of big Yeah, and I, I definitely do want to get into that conversation conversation crime analysis versus intelligence analysts but you had mentioned that you have enough flexibility to make this position what you want and i realize that you've only been into the positions for 16 months but in that 16 months really what have you been able to accomplish in establishing the position so i would say our the first biggest thing we um, with poor grammar but the i would say the first big thing that really we started working on was we had a rash of car thefts and so you know we were looking for trends in regards to communities where they're happening kind of cars are stolen, what, you know, what's the MO that the offenders are using. And ultimately, we determined that here's all these different locations that are hitting, they're hitting when they're hitting them, days of the week. And so that was kind of the first big thing that we really worked on as a team and ultimately kind of using the, the sheriff herself to kind of push the message out of, you know, hey, people. Ultimately, what we discovered is the, the biggest indicator of whether or not these people were going to get their cars stolen was the fact that people left their cars unlocked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes they leave it running, which makes it nice <laughs> yeah no luckily we didn't have any of those but you, and then sit there and kind of wonder like sometimes the same person to get hit twice and you're like why you didn't learn the first time that, uh, <laughs> now it just sounds like a scam not your car, yeah, <laughs> yeah not to leave your keys in the car kind of thing but we ultimately got to present some of that one of the prosecuting officers in the surrounding county it was kind of cool in that regard and since then i'd say one of the other big things that I've worked on, a rash, basically individuals getting into the 
the blue mailboxes that are outside most post offices and mm-hmm. stealing checks from them. And that's kind of been the big thing I've been working on now is mm-hmm. stolen checks that are being cash mailed out to individuals all throughout the country. So we had checks stolen from Cincinnati end up in New York State or New Jersey. And they're, you know, there is somebody writing a check for $100, pay their electric bill, and it's getting cash New York for $20,000. Oh, um, so not only are they stealing the check, they're doing some counterfeiting as well and that they're changing the amount on the check. Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's been a very interesting and, you know, it's been, it's a type of, of crime that, you know, if you'd asked me last year when I started, do you want to work on a, a money fraud case with people stealing, you know, an old person's check and then they're mailing it out and somebody's cashing it for $20,000, probably would have told you that doesn't sound very interesting at all. But once you actually start to, to dig into it, the whole process of that has been very interesting. Uh, I've reached out and called, called a professor. That's what they study is, you know, type of crime where people are fraudulently stealing, you know, they're stealing checks from blue mailboxes, selling them online, you know, anonymous apps like, you know, WhatsApp or Telegram and, you know, to buyers who are buying these checks and they're, you know, they're paying them for the check and then they're going to check X dollar amount, they, you know, that they pay the buyer, they pay the seller. It's a very kind of interesting thing and one of the, like I said, where I get to kind of make the, the job what I want it to be. Like I said, you asked me last year, I would have said, no, it really doesn't sound that interesting, but actually getting to, to kind of, you know, a unit that's defining itself on what its capabilities are. Very, very cool to kind of learn. I may have told you what interests me or now are now interested. Yeah. Now, in terms of targeting the blue mailbox, is that something that you found is just in Cincinnati or is this something that folks are seeing across the United States? It's actually it's something that's pretty much across the United States. I would when I was kind of doing my you know research of trying to figure out how they how it was all functional article I found that actually you know started me down the path of looking at some of these different things was actually out of D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a Washington Post article and they were talking about kind of a similar instances going on. But it was very interesting. And then as I kind of worked more and worked with our detectives and we kind of started to put pieces together and they started working with the postal inspector. The postal inspector was basically telling them it's kind of a thing going on nationwide. People will get a hold of the keys to get into the blue mailboxes, and then they basically steal checks. Hmm. Wow. All right. And just have you been able to take any law enforcement analysis training? Yeah. So I was, when I, we first started, one of the things that Argonet Pusclow was for all the analysts take the ILEA ILEA course, introductory level course. Mm-hmm. So I took that class. I think it's Fiat. Um, Is that Fiat? One, Fiat, yeah. Uh, I took that class and then hit my one year as far as after completing that, I think July. So mm-hmm. that was one of the first courses they had us, they had us take as far as that because, our, like I said, we were a new unit, so we had a guy who Army Intel but didn't have any law enforcement experience. And then we had a individual who she was – she had a big – she had a, a, her Ph.D. in criminology, so didn't have a ton of analytical experience but had more of the knowledge base as far as how law enforcement functions. Okay. Hmm. I'm curious to know, and we can stick with the project you're working on with the blue mailboxes. Do you feel that the military handles issues like that differently from what you've experienced there with the sheriff's office? So you certainly have gone through some training now. And so is the way you got trained with law enforcement analysis going to tackle that problem differently from maybe how the military would handle it if they were had a similar situation. From an intelligence perspective, I would say not necess- it wouldn't necessarily be different. I mm-hmm. would say probably the the methods they would use would be a little bit more diff- a little bit different. I think one of the big kind of I think one of the big problems that a law enforcement and the and the military face when it comes to dealing with with problems you have a ton of problem sets to deal with and you have a very limited finite number of resources to elect or act upon whatever you're trying to so Mm-hmm. One of the things they would always tell us in the military is, you know, you may have a problem set, but there's, you know, always a bigger fish who's going to absorb those resources at that time that you need to actually collect. And it's the same thing kind of here in, in law enforcement where, you know, 
yeah, I've been focused on this problem set, but there's also 10 other problem sets that kind of pop up, you know, to detract my time, other people's time, detract the detective's time to actually kind of focus on, on these cases. So I would say the approach is going to be similar. One of the big differences is the military has a ton of money at the same time. They can buy better, some of the better systems, better capabilities to collect. But in the end, both the military and the and law enforcement run into the same issue of you have infinite problems with limited resources to actually deal with those infinite problems. Mm-hmm. All right, and then I and then I do. I, we can use that that still that same example with the the blue mailboxes because the segue into the this idea of crime analysis and intelligence analysts in law enforcement because I I think there's obviously various avenues for law enforcement agencies to tackle that problem similar to the blue mailbox. In that, obviously, there's the investigative side where you're trying to identify and arrest whoever is responsible for stealing those checks. And and then there's another angle that you could take, which you get into prevention, where you start to educate the public or start doing some target hardening to where you make that blue mailbox more difficult to get items out of and that's just a, just two avenues that you could take but it does get into this idea of historically you may have intel analysts looking at the the people trying to identify who's responsible and the crime analyst may be going down the path of you know problem-oriented policing where they are looking at problem areas problem targets what have you in this case it's a it's a blue mailbox and trying to work more at the prevention avenue but i think from you as you mentioned in the military side that would all be done as part of the same project but in in law enforcement analysis it's really those are two separate functions yeah i think that's one of the big things as far as uh, yeah i think as far as how that all goes yeah i mean you really hit the nail on the head as far as you have multiple kind of ways to to deal with um how how a crime is stopped and how to discourage individuals from either going to this location and continuing to commit a crime like what about you know, x location makes it inviting to the to case you have law enforcement the criminal is it you know is it poorly lit but at the same time you know looking at the individual themselves and trying to determine you know yeah maybe this individual maybe this location is poorly lit but you know, maybe this individual also maybe this location is important to them as well and kind of draws them here for other reasons do they live in the area is it convenient for them all those types all those types of factors really play a role as well as intel perspective trying to you know assess when the individuals act again terminal that way the the investigator can be in the right place at the right time to stop crime from happening from the law enforcement angle yeah i I, obviously and we talked on this show a couple times about it it i i think where the analyst is stationed dictates how the tasks that they're assigned and what type of analysis that they're going to be doing. I've been assigned to the homicide unit, for instance. And obviously in in that scenario, I was supporting homicide investigations and that was my main duty. And then I've been assigned to be an analyst and I was stationed closer to the IT staff. And in that regard, it seemed like I was more into data management and just special projects that came up either as investigations or strategic analysis came into play. So in the same regards, we coming back to this blue mailbox deal, if, if I am normally supporting investigations and that's my main goal as an analyst, to support investigations, tactical analysis, if you will. It does seem kind of odd then that I would say, oh, you know what? We do want to investigate these sets of crimes, but also we want to go into more of the target hardening, solving the problem. That does seem a little bit odd to me that somebody that was supporting 
analysis would jump over to that. That does seem like two separate roles to me. And mainly it's because they're probably, if they're there to support investigations, that once this investigation's done, they would just jump to the next investigation to support that instead of sticking with this particular scenario of trying to solve and prevent theft in blue mailboxes. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that from that perspective for sure. I think one of the reasons the military does kind of that as it is, is it's always trying to evaluate, you know, because in the military, at least from my experience, you're, you're trying to come up with a counter and your adversary is trying to come up with a counter to that counter mm-hmm. along those lines. And so you, your analysts are constantly thinking about, okay, well, I've done this to kind of alter what I'm doing, you know, altered my behavior to do this. And now the adversary is now doing something different. And maybe that counters what I had done previously. I remember I heard a story from someone while I was an analyst that the there were certain individuals and thought that somehow the military was putting trackers in Lipton tea. And <laughs> The adversary stopped drinking Lipton tea because they thought that somehow we were tracking them through trackers that have been placed. Uh-huh. And it was just one of the kind of those things where you, you know, they took an approach to, I guess, kind of how you mentioned hardening the mailboxes, how they, mm-hmm. they took an approach to harden themselves. I mean, granted, it was the wrong approach, but I think that's one of the ways where anal- analysis kind of plays in as well as you, know, you might take an avenue to a, approach on how to harden a target, but maybe we were wrong on how we chose to actually kind of approach that target. So, yeah, I might have moved on to a, a different topic, you know, immediately after we come up with a solution. But I feel like I should always come back to that, you know, that previous problem set every so often and reevaluate, you know, did what I, did the action I took actually have the effect or, you know, did we harden incorrectly? Did we, did what we, you know, did the action we take action result in what we wanted it to do? And if it, you know, if it is, has our has the criminal found a way around the act to, to try to make that target more difficult uh, yeah. for them to approach? Yeah. What can happen too in police departments when you're just talking about tactical analysis, when you're talking about just working the crime series, most likely you are staying in the realm of the police department. I mean, obviously you're going to be interviewing witnesses and and maybe talking to subject matter experts that are outside of the police department. But for the most part, you are staying in the lane of law enforcement. When you go into more trying to solve the problem or trying to target harden or more prevention, then most likely you are getting outside of the police department because you're working with other departments and maybe educating the public and identifying different ways that are usually beyond law enforcement that can help prevent that particular crime. And some people aren't necessarily comfortable with that, right? It's like, oh, I'd rather just stay in police department. I'd rather stay here, deal with the people that I know, than reach across the aisle and deal with other departments of the city or other departments, non-law enforcement entities. Yeah, I think it's one of the the things that I find most because it was I mean it was a, it was a challenge even in the military you think about the military there are four branches mm-hmm. of the of, in the well five now with the space force but you have five branches of the military plus the coast guard and it, communication across you know those different nodes is difficult and then you end up with in the in the law enforcement realm where a county might have 50 different police departments depending on the size of the county the number of municipalities in the county you know you're trying to deal with problems that they spread across the whole county but you're looking for that one entity and that one agency that maybe is also experiencing that difficulties that you're you're experiencing and so i think that's one of the i would say more difficult things in regards to policing because everybody has their own problems they deal with you know they have their own those own their own issue and now somebody's calling you from a different department and they're dealing with a problem and you have 10 other problems on your plate that you're trying to deal with i think that's one of the one of the biggest challenge one of the biggest kind of challenges i've spent you know everybody's busy with their own their own kind of problems i think everybody in law enforcement knows that you know there's manpower issues all throughout different departments you have fewer officers and fewer employees doing trying to do the same amount of work being in the military i remember the the do more with less (laughs) kind of thing the kind of saying i mean in the military they struggled they that wasn't really practical it was just kind of your yeah i'm trying to do everything i can fewer people to do it and it creates hiccups and challenges law enforcement seeing the exact same thing everybody's trying to help everybody you're trying to help everybody out but at the same time there's a bunch of agencies that are all dealing with the problem yeah 
Hmm. All right, before we move on to the favorite first jobs call-in segment, just wanted to ask about your top secret clearance. And is that something that you still have, or is that something that you no longer have now that you're outside of the military? So it's something I still have. I am so I have it, but I'm not what I'm not indoctrinated into it. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. So basically, there's a, a briefing that you get when you you know you get you do your background check, you get your clearance, and you have all that. But once you're not at a job that requires it, you become unindoctrinated into the the clearance. And so I have it. I just can't view any of the any information without being indoctrinated. Yeah. It's, I think it's fascinating when I look back because I, I eventually got the top secret SCI clearance as you did. And for in my head, that was going to open up so many opportunities for me. Like once I got that clearance, I thought the world was going to be my oyster type of things in all seriousness. And it was certainly took a while to get through and so you're just anticipating that day of getting cleared and it was so disappointing (laughs) to be honest with you i don't know necessarily (laughs) how it really impacted me i did use in the, the job that i was getting it for but it really didn't open up any doors as far as I know in in terms of my career opportunities. So I always felt that it was really disappointing. I don't know if you feel the same way or you would, I mean, certainly you probably encourage analysts if they get the opportunity to get any type of clearance, you get it, but it, the expectations need to be managed. Yeah, that's, a, that's, for, that's for sure. I, I mean, I enjoy, I, it obviously gives you access to things that you otherwise wouldn't read, but we would always joke that, you know, the way the media is now and how social media is now, that a lot of the stuff that you can read on TS is somewhere out there on, on Google, if you Google it the right, right somewhere, somewhere out somebody's already posted about that information on Twitter or something. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff you can just get if you know where to look. And but I do agree. It, it's awesome to get. And I do think it does open some doorways for you. But at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there that you're like, man, this is really boring. There's no, there's nothing about JFK or aliens. <laughs> on here. Exactly. All right. So we're going to play your favorite first jobs. We have six callers on the line. And so first on the line is Jim. Jim, what is your favorite first job? Well, not really a job. It was more like a gig. The first couple of years that I was a crime analyst, I played in a local college rock band. I've been a drummer all of my life. I, I started out college as a music major and marched in college band, played in drum and bugle corps. So I continued that. And when I started a crime analyst, I, I played in a, a local college band for about two years. I had to give it up eventually. The other guys in the band, you know, they had dreams of making it big. And, and we started doing shows more and more nights of the week. And it was hard to have a full-time job as a crime analyst. And then, you know, be up all night till three or four in the morning playing. So it got to be a little bit too much, but it was, it was a great experience. And I had, I had tons of fun playing in a band in a college town. So that's interesting. That makes me think of the Brian Adams song, summer of 69, right? Where the band breaks up (laughs) and I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily have a musical bone. So I am certainly impressed of uh, someone that has analytical skills and musical talent. I can't play any musical instruments either, so I have no musical bones either. <laughs> yeah, but that's definitely an interesting first job. All right, next on the line is Chris. Chris, what's one of your favorite first jobs? My favorite first job was selling fireworks in the parking lot of a Walmart. People would walk up, look under the tables, and then say, where are all the illegal fireworks? I mean, I remember growing up with, you know, fireworks, and they were, <laughs> I would say, probably my favorite experience, my favorite in kind of the just the craziest event of with fireworks that you know I ever experienced was we bought some fireworks to celebrate the 4th of July and we're out in the field shooting them off my dad I and Mr. and the fireworks fell over and I remember we all dove and hit the deck and I remember my dad <laughs> he's laying on top of my sister probably about 10 at the time as the fireworks are whistling over our heads <laughs> so I don't know if, I don't know if that counts you know as far as you know your interesting fireworks experience but they definitely weren't illegal so they were definitely illegally purchased fireworks but but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really even know. I've, I've never seen anybody sell fireworks in a parking lot before. Yeah, well, they do here in Florida, but they're pretty specific here in Florida. And it's so funny how the different states and different roles. 
In Florida, you can only fire off fireworks twice a year, 4th of July and New Year's. Other than that, you, you can't do it legally. And huh. so, but they'll have them in the Walmart parking lots, the tents selling fireworks. Actually, I just talked to a buddy who lives in Illinois, and apparently in Illinois, as you're traveling the highways to, I think it's Wisconsin, he said, that there's a sign on the Illinois side that says last chance to buy marijuana before you get to Wisconsin. And on the Wisconsin side, it says on the same highway, last chance to buy fireworks. So apparently you can buy weed in Illinois, but not fireworks. And in Wisconsin, you can buy fireworks, but not weed. <laughs> strange, strange place we live in. So, all right. Next on the line is Danielle. Danielle, what's one of your favorite first jobs? I would have to say being an archaeologist. That was an awesome experience. I worked in Southern California in Newport Beach, and some of the stuff we found had never been seen before of Native Americans. And so I really miss being out in the field and doing that kind of stuff, but it was a great, great experience. It actually taught me databases and ArcGIS mapping, crazy enough. But so, yeah, I, I owe that job to helping me become a crime analyst. On the show, often I am fascinated what people did before they were analysts. And to me, when she first said that about being an archaeologist, I was like, oh, that doesn't sound very relatable. But then at the end, she had a nice hook into how it helped her learn ArcGIS and, and some of the other programming. So I, that's something that I would not have anticipated a good, a nice, clean path from archaeology to law enforcement analysis. Yeah, that's, that, yeah. I, I just think when I think archaeology, I think, you know, Indiana Jones is kind of the standard <laughs> what pops into my brain. So, so, you know, I don't think of Indiana Jones hopping on a computer and using ArcGIS to map, you know, his next, his next treasure hunt or, you know, archaeological dig he's going on, so. Yeah, well, Very there's interesting kind of first job. Well, there is a new movie coming out with Indiana Jones, so Esri, get on that. You can get have some marketing opportunities. <laughs> All right, our next caller is Joan. Joan, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Well, believe it or not, Jason, I used to be the little old lady that made the biscuits for Hardee's. When I was in college, I was working two jobs, and they threw me in there in the morning to make biscuits and I'm not a big cook myself but I'd go in three o'clock in the morning get up and make the biscuits from scratch at Hardy's every Saturday and Sunday for a long time. Excellent and what do they do with the ones that they don't sell do they just throw them out? They do or you let you take them home. Oh okay. But they were pretty good about you know, we're down to so many and you'd make another batch. You tried to keep them fresh and yeah. same thing with hamburgers. You, you know, you can only keep it for so long and they called it getting burned on the grill. Yeah. Burgers too at Hardee's and Wendy's, but yeah, you don't ever want to get burned on the grill. No, that's, that's interesting. See, I would have yeah. never, I would have never known about, about that. Now, I'll so. tell you a funny story, Jason. <laughs> when I, I worked at Hardee's in the morning. Then I'd go to Wendy's in the afternoon on, on weekends. So I'd open, I'd make the biscuits. Then I'd work the drive-through in the morning at Hardee's. My shift would end at two. Then I'd go to uh, Wendy's in the evening. And so work in the windows at Hardee's that morning. And then I go I'm at Wendy's. And this guy comes through the drive-through and he looks at me and he's like, "Do you have a twin sister?" I was like, "What? No. Why?" He goes, "I could have sworn I you sold me biscuits this morning at Hardee's." It's the same guy. I said, well, you're at the right restaurant. This is the one I'm working at today. Well, that is funny. First job was in fast food. Yeah. Well, I think in particular, Hardee's, their claim to fame is their fresh biscuits. And so it's definitely something that's made from scratch. When I think of fast food, I think of just everything's in the freezer and either throw it in the fryer or throw it on the grill. And that's essentially what you're doing. But it, with the process of making the biscuits, there's actually a process of rolling the dough and cutting them out and actually what seems like actual baking. Yeah. All right. Next on the line is Krista. Krista, what's one of your favorite first jobs? When I was 16 years old, my first job was working at Tom McCann Shoes. It was 1984 and the minimum wage was $3.35 an hour. But... I worked on commission, 
So if I sold you a matching purse or socks, I would earn some commission. And so I actually am proud to say that I averaged about $5 an hour during those times. Yeah. And $5 back in 1984 an hour, that was actually a pretty good wage for a teenager. Yeah. I mean, well, well before I was born, so I can't really speak too much. To oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I was thinking too, I think in 89, I think I was only making $3 an hour at an amusement park. So I, she was doing better than me five years earlier. So, yeah, all right. that's not bad at all. Yeah. So, all right. And our final caller is Eric. Eric, what's one of your favorite first jobs? Party furniture delivery man. My parents actually owned a small party store. We would deliver tables, chairs, and put up tents. Right. So it was nice to be outside most of the day. Now that's an interesting thing. And we did so much moving when we were kids, it makes me think that, yeah, I probably could easily have been a mover and help move furniture and, and whatnot. Cause we had to always move furniture into various angles upstairs and narrow hallways and, and whatnot. So I probably could have been done that job. So, but that's also, you're dealing with people when they're the most stressed, right? Moving is very stressful. So you're dealing with that anxiety yeah i feel like i'm a mover half the time when i go home from work because my wife's got some kind of idea on how she wants to rearrange you know this room or that room and so i feel like i spend half the time when i get home rearranging the rooms <laughs> in the house to move stuff from here to there or wherever she wants it there. yeah <laughs> all right well that's favorite first jobs if you have a favorite first job you want to share with us contact us at leapodcasts at gmail.com all right, Andrew, let's finish up with words to the world. This is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? I would say it's kind of what I told my students when I was tech school is really never, never stop learning. Always find something to find interesting or new to learn because you just never know when that's going to be valid for, for whatever you're working on. You know, you'd be surprised at the times that you're working on something and the answer that you find is something that you read you know, four or five years ago. But yeah, my biggest thing, and I always told it to my students when I was teaching, was never stop learning and always trying to make yourself better. Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, Andrew. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thank you for having me. Be safe as well. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.